James chapter 1. I'm thankful to be able to preach. I know Pastor Bill, he's always a few weeks out on his sermons, and uh, I know he probably had something he already wanted to preach on, but not this week. I'll have to postpone it a week or two. And so uh, I'm thankful for the opportunity to be able to do it. Let's read, starting in verse 13, 13 through 15. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. The title of the sermon this morning is called The Normalization of Deviance. The Normalization of Deviance. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for a few moments to open up your word. Uh, We're we're thankful that at Gospel Baptist Church, uh, the preaching of your word is the centerpiece. As we uplift you in every way, shape, and form that we can, as through the preaching of your word, trying to point people to Jesus, uh, may we see you for who you truly are this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I spoke on this topic a few years ago. And it was actually in a bus meeting, and it was a really short, condensed, you know, five to eight minute little devotion on the normalization of deviance. The idea for this came from Mr. John Rochelle. He's doing security out in the foyer this morning, but it came from him. It was from a comment or a conversation that we had when we were heading up to camp. Each year, as Brother Thomas mentioned, we'd take our young people up to camp, and often the camps are quite a distance away. Uh, for us, I think it was about you know, 13 or 15 hours for us to drive from Bonita all the way to the wilds, which is right near Brevard, North Carolina. And so we have to have a couple people uh, drive, and so John Rochelle volunteered uh, to do so. He ended up driving the whole way, by the way. He's an animal. Didn't even want to switch. And then he got in a car and drove all the way back. Unbelievable. Anyway... Throughout this time, you know, I'm making sure he's staying awake, right? And, you know, in the late morning hours, driving through the night, you know, conversations happen. And, of course, uh, having my CDL and he having his and also him working in his uh, medical profession uh, as an EMT and uh, firefighter, I believe, in the past, he, uh, you know, we began talking about you know, driving big vehicles and different things, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. And one of the things I think that that started the conversation was about talking on the cell phone while driving the bus. (laughs) That is a big, big, big no-no. I mean, if talking, I I believe Florida passed, you know, the hands-free thing about two years ago, maybe something, something along those lines. But it's always been that way, you know, driving a bus, a you know, 18-wheeler, whatever it may be, especially when you have other people's lives in your hand. You cannot be distracted having a phone up to your ear. But uh, the idea for that, uh, as we were talking about it, you know, being distracted and talking, and what happens is maybe one person does it, and they begin talking on the phone, and let's just say I see John Rochelle talking, which he does not do, talking on the phone while he's driving the bus, and then it's my turn to take the wheel. And, you know, right about that time, I'm driving along, I get a phone call. Ah, you know what, John Rochelle did it. Probably not that big of a deal. I pick up my phone and I answer it, cruising along down the highway. He says, that is a 
That is what we call the normalization of deviance. And he says it is a big problem in the medical profession. Big problem. Here's, here's what it is. Normalization of deviance. Normalize means to make normal, to establish a standard. And deviance is to depart from the norm, performing in a non-standardized way. Maybe a simple definition would be something like this. Rationalizing shortcuts under pressure. Or you take a shortcut and nothing bad happens, so you keep doing it because you got away with it. And so things like this, not wearing a seatbelt. Maybe in the medical profession, he rides in an ambulance, drives an ambulance a lot. Maybe it's not wearing a seatbelt because, you know, the seatbelt is just one more thing. I mean, lives are on the line. It takes time. I mean, when you're in a rush, click. When you show up on the scene, wouldn't it be a lot faster if you could just hop out of your vehicle without having to take the time to hit your seatbelt? Sure, sure. So people rationalize those types of decisions, and that's normalizing deviant behavior. Okay, and it goes on. It could be a construction worker not putting on his hard hat when he goes out on the job site. Nick's nodding his head, yeah. And, you know, you just got to go in there and you got to say one thing to one employee. And, you know, it's just going to be fast. It's going to be quick. You know, I've done it before. Nothing bad's happened. So you walk in there without your hard hat on. Because, you know, a wrench or a pair of pliers has never hit you in the head and killed you before. So must be all right. Maybe it's standing on a five-gallon bucket instead of going and getting the ladder. Guilty as charged. Guilty as charged. Medical profession, maybe somebody's choking, and you think, you know what, if I just take my finger in there and swipe it out, I think I can do it. I know I've done it before. I can make it happen and save this person's life, and okay, you, you do it. Of course, there's a big warning on that from when we do our CPR training. Don't do that because you can push it further on down the throat. But, you know, we rationalize poor behavior, usually under stress. Now, this term is coined by Diane Vaughn. Diane Vaughn. Uh, she did a study in 1990-91, uh, somewhere around that time. She did a study on the Space Shuttle Challenger and how when that exploded, the loss of life there, and what all happened. Well, she says that the normalization of deviance is when the process by which deviance from the correct and proper behavior becomes normalized in corporate culture. So she termed this phrase, coined this phrase, I should say. Uh, that flight, by the way, January 28, 1986, some of you probably uh, remember that vividly. The Space Shuttle Challenger failed in flight, and seven people lost their lives. So how big of a deal are we talking about? Seven lives. Seven folks who are never coming back to their families. Because deviant behavior became the norm. What happened in that event? Well, what happened was, in this case, the disaster came from damage to small O-rings. Small O-rings, uh, an O-ring joint that sealed the rocket to the booster. 
And how this happened was that there were test flights uh, that were successful with defective O-rings. So as I did these test flights, okay, it was defective. Hmm, no big deal. And as early, by the way, as early as 1977, remember this happened in 1986, nine years before, there was concern about the integrity of the joint where that O-ring met. Seven out of nine flights, by the way, show damage, but they were overlooked and passed along. Also, on the morning of the flight, on the morning of the flight, the temperature was lower than the standard that they were supposed to launch at. And they should have called it off and said, no, we're not doing it because the cold temperature, not only did the O-rings have problems to begin with, but now the colder temperature caused them to be brittle and break. And of course, that shuttle launched up into the atmosphere and seven individuals lost their lives. The normalization of deviance. How does this apply to the Christian life? Probably in your mind, you've got a million ways right now that are running through your head the way I am. Wow, this applies to the Christian life phenomenally. How does it happen? It starts with shortcuts, and it starts with compromises. Matthew 7, 13 and 14 says, Enter ye at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way which leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, but few there be that find it. The right way is the difficult way. The easy way is the way that most people are taking. The right way is the hard way. No, today, today, most people today don't want to do anything that is difficult. They want success right now. Predominantly young people my age, generally speaking, are not willing to put in the work that you folks and maybe your parents put in over the years to have what they have. That's why we see young people go out and finance a new car that is double what they make a year. (laughs) They want it now instead of waiting. They got to go out and spend money on a mortgage that is way over their head. They want it now. They do not. We are a microwave society. Put it in there. 60 seconds is too long. We want it right away. Diet pills. Hey, if I just take this pill, no hard work needed. Throw the pill in the mouth, drink a glass of water, lose all the weight I'm supposed to lose. We're sorry it doesn't work that way. In the Christian life, it's the same way. The shortcut always looks better. Always. I remember my dad on this one specific trip when we used to live up in Connecticut when I was real little. We were going to the beach one day, and this was uh, a beach that we really didn't go to very often. And it was probably about 45 minutes, an hour drive. Uh, He's listening to this, I'm sure, if not now, later. So he'll appreciate me telling about his shortcuts. And he said... As we're heading to the beach, you know, it was beautiful morning time. I mean, wonderful time. It's when you want to be at the beach. And maybe there was a little bit of traffic or something. And I remember uh, up in Connecticut while we were driving, there were, it wasn't, you know, real big busy streets. You're driving along and, and, and he looks and there's a road going off, nice curvy up a bunch of hills. I know a shortcut. I've been here before. Those are dangerous words when dads say that. And so he takes, 
I mean, I think we were, it added an hour to the trip. By the time we got to the beach, the sun was beating down on us. It was a big weekend, something like a Memorial Day weekend. So everybody was there. You get the worst spot. You're out there in the sand that has all the rocks in it. The shortcut looked good, but we really suffered because of it. I think about Bible characters, and throughout this sermon, we're going to mention four or five different Bible characters and how they made poor decisions and normalizing poor behavior caused them to suffer greatly. And hopefully by the end of it, we can learn from their mistakes. I think about Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah, God told them that they were going to have a son. And not only were they going to have a son, but through that son, all the nations of the earth were going to be blessed through the line of Abraham. Now, as they got older and older, you know the story. I won't go into it too much. As they got older and older, Sarah especially began to doubt God. I'm past the age of having children. So what did she try to do? She tried to create a shortcut. She tried to create a shortcut. She said, Abraham, here's my handmaiden, Hagar. You know, I know we were supposed to have this son, but you know, uh, maybe God's forgotten about it. This, is, this is, must be a better way. And of course, Abraham went along with it. And look at all the trouble that that has caused. Abraham and Hagar had a son named Ishmael. You can trace it back. All the trouble going on in the Middle East can be traced back to that. All because of a shortcut. It looked good. In the moment, it looked like it was the right choice. But it was terrible. Absolutely terrible. Many churches today are so focused on results that they're willing to compromise their integrity to be able to get people in the door, have a big crowd, be able to meet their budget. It's the truth. We see it all over the place. Compromising integrity. You know, God's way must not be the best way. Let's take matters into our own hands. I have a friend while I was at college. I had a, I had a pastor friend. He was probably in his late 30s, maybe early 40s. Had a little family at the time. And he called me up, and we were just chatting about things, and he had recently taken a church somewhere down in Texas. And as he was talking to me about the church, he says, you know, when I came in here, the budget, I mean, we had no money. I mean, we weren't meeting the budget. The bank was sending us letters, you're going to be in foreclosure if you don't start bringing in some money. So finally, the bank sent the last letter. If you don't give us this money by such and such date, which was about a month out, we're coming in and we're taking over the property. So he said, Chris, you know what I did? I had to get people in the door. I got a big rock band, set it up on stage, had a big worship service because I had, to, I had to bring people in the door. It's one thing to have maybe a motive and say, you know what, in my mind, I can maybe, maybe somebody will say, well, I'll rationalize doing this, but not this guy. He was not for it. But he chose to try to take a shortcut 
instead of do things the right way and rely on God. His back was up against the wall. And you know what? He folded under pressure. We look throughout Scripture, and we see the, the times that God does the greatest miracle in people's lives is when their backs are against the wall. But we want to take a shortcut. And you know what? That man, he missed out on seeing God do something incredible and in coming through for him because he folded too soon. As believers, we, that's what we do. We're pushed into a situation where we think there's no way out. What God's doing is he's testing us, but too often we compromise our integrity in God's way and end up suffering by the way that church is no more. With those type of principles running the operation, it was doomed to succeed. Maybe you sit back and you wonder, how has my life gotten to the place where it's at? Maybe do some backtracking and see where you've taken some shortcuts. Maybe see where you've compromised a little bit here, a little bit there, because it seemed like the right thing to do in the moment. And that's probably where you'll find the mistake. Not only do we take shortcuts, but we rationalize our poor choices. <laughs> Don't we not? We rationalize our poor choices. We say things like, it just makes sense. It just makes sense. Let's think of a Bible example. We're going to go back to Cain and Abel. God gave them specific commands about how they were supposed to sacrifice. And what did Cain do? Did Cain bring a lamb like his brother Abel did? The best of the best? Spotless? No. Cain went and he brought, he was a farmer. He liked to cultivate things and grow things. So he brought his fruits and his vegetables before God and laid them on an altar and burnt them up. And of course, God was not pleased. But in our humanity and in our mind, what we can do is we can rationalize what Cain did. Can we not? And we can say, well, it makes sense. Well, Cain was a farmer. So wouldn't it make sense that what he would sacrifice would be what he was good at? But that's not the way God operates. And you just say, well, you know, he brought his first fruits to him. It was the best of the best that he had, but God was not happy with it because it was not God's way. We can try to rationalize our sinful choices and our compromises one after the other after the other. But if it's not God's way, folks, he is not going to be pleased and he's not going to accept what we are offering him. Naaman tried to rationalize things. He was the captain of the host of Syria. He came down with leprosy. You remember, maybe you remember the story when you were in Sunday school, the flanographs and those types of things. I remember those vividly. And how he was told by Elisha to go wash in the Jordan River and to dip seven times. Now, when he made that plea to Elisha, Elisha's servant came and told him what to do. And the first thing that Naaman says is, I want the prophet to come to me. 
Naaman trying to call the shots, which is what we often do. He then says, you know, oh, okay, he's not going to come to me. There, there are many, there, there are a couple other bodies of water and rivers over here by Damascus. Those will be much better. Trying to overthink the situation. Until his servant said, you know, Naaman, you ought to go dip in the Jordan River seven times. He goes there. He dips down in that dirty, muddy river seven times, and he comes up with baby skin. You know what? If he would have tried to do things his way, would have tried to went to those other rivers, any other body of water, he would not have been healed. Only, only folks, if he would have done it God's way. So it's very important that we do things God's way. We rationalize our sin and say, I can serve God, but I can also serve myself at the same time. We all do that, myself included. We can serve God, but also serve our flesh and our desires. Matthew 6, 24 says, no man can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. Some folks are trying to hold on to God and hold on to the world at the same time. Someone explained it like this. It's like standing on your second story in the second story of your house and reaching out and trying to grab that electrical wire. It's not going to end good. It's one or the other. Can't be having both at the same time. So what's the reward? of these poor behaviors, these shortcuts, these compromises, trying to rationalize these things in our mind. What's the reward? Well, the Bible's true. You reap what you sow. It says in Galatians 6, 7, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Whatever you plant is what you're going to get. You plant tomato seeds, you're getting tomatoes. Planting corn, you're getting corn. Planting okra, mm, you get okra. Folks, you reap what you sow. And mark my words, if we allow ourselves to normalize our sin and our compromises and our deviant behavior, our sin is going to catch up to us. You may say, but I've gotten away with it. Exactly. That's the problem. That's why you keep doing what you're doing, because you've gotten away with it. We say, well, God must not really care that much because I've gotten away with it up to this point. Believe, oh, oh, believe me, he cares. Think, look, look back throughout the Bible. Very seldomly does, does God drop the hammer on his people very quickly. What does he do? He shows mercy. I mean, even in the case of Noah in Genesis chapter 6, what was it, 120 years? God had mercy, and by the way, only Noah and his family were saved, so it wasn't like there was a whole bunch of other people who got converted. Wow, God is slow. The Israelites, God would say judgment is coming, and it doesn't happen for another 100 years. It's like, whoa, how merciful is God? Very merciful, but when judgment comes, it's going to wreak havoc in your life and in my life if we allow sin to to continue. You say, I've gotten away with it. You plant a seed in the ground, does it sprout up in the same day? No, come on now, no. It may take weeks, months, maybe even some seeds up to a year before they start manifesting themselves and you start reaping what you sow. 
Never use past success to redefine acceptable performance. Never use past success to redefine acceptable pro- performance. There's a story, and you know I'm even saddened to share this story. Uh, many of you, about probably 20, 20 years ago, maybe somewhere around there, there was a young family, I think, involved in school here, and this is a story I hear from Pastor Bill, is that you know the mom picked up the boy from school, his young, maybe kindergarten, first, second grade, something like that, picked him up from school. They just had to run over to Publix, little sports car, had a nice little sports car, just threw the kid in the front seat. I think what I heard, no seatbelt. Hey, we're just running across the road real quick. I mean, we're talking about the public's less than a, a quarter mile, maybe. It's just so close. They left out of here, went through the intersection, got hit by another car, and the little child died. Terrible. Now, I'm not saying that it was totally avoidable. Maybe if the kid was wearing a seatbelt, maybe if he was even in a car, God would have still taken that child. Maybe it was his time. Maybe that was in God's plan. I don't know. But all I'm saying is there were steps that were overlooked, which had a terrible outcome. Hmm. So often we try to compromise and say, well, I've done it before. Be weary. Don't let your past successes define Define acceptable performance today. Well, how does this happen? Well, it starts with denial. Denial. When normalization of deviance happens on a large scale, no one within the organization can see the shortcomings because the deviant behavior has become the new standard. Denial. The drift away from the standard is so slow that you don't even realize it is happening. Another, another Bible character for us, Samson. Young man had all the potential in the world. Could have been one of the greatest or the greatest judge out of any, other, any of the judges in the book there. Could have been one of the greatest heroes of the faith, but turned out to be a zero instead. What happened? Small compromises here and there. Started falling in love with a girl that was not a believer, was not a child of God. Philistine, pagan worshiper, heathen, started with that. Started with his trips down there to Timnath. Started with going through, he had a Nazarite vow, I'm not going to get into it for time's sake. Had, you know, five vows that he was not supposed to break. Find himself going through the vineyards. One of his vows was he's not supposed to be around any fruit of the vine. Remember, he goes and he touches the dead carcass, another compromise here or there. Finds himself after his bride ends up getting murdered, he goes and finds another woman, a real winner, Delilah. He finds himself compromising, laying his head on her lap as she pats his head as he goes to sleep. Three different times, she says, Samson, tell me, tell me where your source of strength comes from. And he says, oh, it's, you, you got to take some new vines and seven vines wrap around me and, you know, I'll be weak like any other man. So while he's sleeping, she does that. He gets up, she, she cries out, I'm sorry, Samson, the Philistines be upon thee. And he gets up, boom, 
shred those vines and, you know, wears out those Philistine men. Second time, the same thing had to do with, you know, a new rope. Third time had to do with tying his hair a certain way. And each time, the Philistines be upon thee, Samson. And so finally, she wears him down. Samson, you don't really love me. If you really love me, you tell me your secret. And so he says, you know what? If you cut my hair, I'll lose my strength. And so he's sleeping one night. She takes the scissors out and goes to work. He gets up. He hops up when she says, Samson, the Philistines be upon thee. And he hops up like he did all those other times. He goes to attack the Philistines. And the Bible says he did not know that the spirit of God had left him. He didn't even know it. But God's blessing was no longer in his life. And he jumped up thinking, I've got this like I've had it all those times before. Believers, we've got Christians who are walking around, living their lives, thinking that they still have the blessing of God and the power of God in their life, but, and they don't even know that it's gone because it is such a slow slide. It's like the frog in the pot of water. It's like when you go into a restaurant that is real dark. I mean, some of these restaurants around here, they are dark. I mean, how do I know? You, you, you folks, you take out the light and you're like, menu. You know what I'm talking about. Had to get you on that. You got your phone, your phone light out looking at the menu. It's so dark. But what happens is after you're sitting around there for 15, 20 minutes, what happens, your eyes slowly get accustomed to the darkness that's in the room. And soon enough, you can see across the room. I mean, as clear as you can see in here. Slowly but surely, we often get accustomed to sin because it happens in such a minor form, time after time after time, until we're just used to it. And we just think that's how life is supposed to be. But folks, but folks, it's not. We, we uh, deny it by comparing ourselves to others, which is my last and final thought. We do it by comparing ourselves to others. 2 Corinthians 10, 12 says, for we, not, for we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. That's a mouthful. That is a mouthful, but we should not compare ourselves with others. Often, when I get to talk to people about the gospel, I'll ask them a question, something like this. Well, how do you know that you're saved? How do you know that heaven's your home, that God's given you eternal life? How do you know that? And they often respond, 90% of them respond, well, I'm a good person. They say, I'm a good person. The problem with saying I'm a good person, the problem with that is that it automatically is comparing yourself to other people. So you're saying, what you're not saying is, I'm a good person. I am a good person compared to everybody else. Oh, when you compare me to, you know, Adolf Hitler, or, you know, you compare me to maybe the guy over in North Korea, or whoever. I look pretty good. You know, I know somebody who murdered somebody, or, you know, I tried to, I, I've been a good, I never abandoned my kids, I've never abandoned my wife. We're comparing ourselves to others. But the problem is, is we can't compare ourselves to one another. We compare ourselves to God. 
Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that God's holiness is the standard that we're supposed to meet, but that each and every one of us has missed the mark. We'd be a fool to compare ourselves one to another because we're supposed to be comparing ourselves to God's standard that we've missed. Thankfully, thankfully, God has offered salvation through his son, Jesus, who came, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, was buried and rose again so that you and I could have salvation. Folks, let's not compare ourselves one to another. We do that in salvation, and we're quick. Us Bible believers, folks who know the Bible, read the Bible, we're quick to say, yep, you can't do that. It's not by being good compared to other people. It's by, you know, being compared to God. That's quick. But those of us that have been saved a while, we do it on another level. We do it in Christian living. In Christian living. We say, well, I'm doing better than most. So I'm sure God's going to be happy with the way I'm living my Christian life. I look around, I see my neighbors and friends, and I look across the aisle and see that person. I know what they're doing. And I'm not doing quite that bad, so I'm sure God's pretty happy with me. No, folks, folks, no. That's not the way it works. As Paul says, we're not comparing ourselves among ourselves. It's not wise. It's not wise that we should do it. We often say, well, We're not going to evangelize because I I know many other good Christian folks, they're not evangelizing. They're not out sharing the gospel. So, you know, it's probably not that big of a deal if I don't. It's the normalization of deviance. Deviant behavior becomes normal. By the way, it's not normal for Christians not to share their faith. For a Christian who's in fellowship with God, it should be a natural response, sharing the gospel. Often churches, we do the same thing when we compare. We look at another organization somewhere else and say, wow, looks like we got a little bit more going on than they do. God must be pretty happy. A church may have the best going on out of anywhere in the community. But if it's not what God wants, he is not pleased. This, there is a grave danger in comparing ourselves, our ministries to other people. We can go and on the bus route and we can say, you know what, a lot of churches are closing their bus ministry. You know what, nah, maybe there's not that many on there. We could probably do the same thing. God forbid, God forbid. We're not doing this. I don't think the bus ministry started because everybody else was doing a bus ministry. I think the bus ministry started because people had a heart to see children, young children and adults come to church who couldn't otherwise get here. That's why we're going to keep doing it. You say, well, no other church. I don't know very many other churches that do door-to-door evangelism. Hey, by God's grace, we're going to keep doing door-to-door evangelism. We're not comparing ourselves to other people. 1 Peter 4.10 says, As every man hath received the gift, even so the same minister, one to another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Say, well, I'm not ministering. I'm not serving at any ministry in my local church, whether it's here, up north, anywhere. I'm really not doing anything. Not good. We're debtors. We're debtors. God has given you a gift, and I gift to serve in the body of Christ. We ought to do so and not compare ourselves to another. Exodus 23.2 says, Do not follow a multitude to do sin. And if you feel like you're the only one, you ought to keep it up. 
because you're probably in the right. Folks, as we close, as we close, may this be a warning to each and every one of us, including me, of the danger of the normalization of deviance. How wrong behavior, sinful actions creep into our lives, into our body as a church, and that wrong behavior, sinful behavior, deviant behavior becomes the norm. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for a few moments to look at this topic on normalization of deviance. I know I'm convicted about this thought and so many things uh, that you've spoken to me about in my life. I'm sure there are many in here who are in the same boat, and God is speaking to them uh, in this moment. We ask your blessing uh, as we move into invitation. Keep speaking to hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would like to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ, you may contact us at the church website, gospelbaptistchurch.com, or you can go to Facebook and type in Gospel Baptist Church Bonita Springs, Florida. Also, you could call the church office at 239-947-1285. Thank you, and God bless.